it felt like everything that I wanted to do working in food because it was it was like more nourishing and more meaningful to me than cooking sometimes was to just sit down with somebody and talk to them on their porch about why you know ramps are culturally significant or you know why this like certain method of canning is important and why they want to pass it on and I think those were all the experiences that really made me think about how my passion for food might actually be a passion for place and food was just like one avenue to explore that. This is Commonplace, the show about creative people and the things that inspire them. I'm Nathan Thomas. Today on the show, we have Chef Mike Costello, who alongside his partner, Amy Dawson, operate Lost Creek Farm. Their work uses food as a means to tell stories that focus on themes of place, people, and doing the most with what resources you have, centering food in both regional and economic contexts. To quote friend of the show, Chef KD Jones, Mike and Amy are revitalizing West Virginia. Virginia food to the highest degree. The farm's signature event series is the Farm and Forge Supper Club, a seasonal series of dinners hosted right on the farm in the house where Mike and Amy live. Throughout the course of the night, guests are treated to not only incredibly cooked dishes, but the stories of how they came to be, who made them, and how they get passed down from generation to generation. Lost Creek Farm is currently fundraising to build a kitchen and classroom space on site at the farm so they can not only continue their their work, but pass on what they've learned to the chefs of tomorrow. I've got information on how you can support their work, whether it be through a donation or buying a t-shirt in the episode description. In our conversation, we talk about combining journalism skills with cooking skills, how cooking can be a form of archival work, and the history and memories behind some of the dishes they serve. Here's my conversation with Mike Costello. Fall season was great. It uh, it's busy, you know, it's like our busiest time of the year. Um, not that we're not busy in the other times, but yeah, just like September and October, um, is always just like the really big sprint at the end of the season. And, um, but it feels really good to wrap it up. You know, we just sort of, uh, we wrapped up our supper club, our farm and forage supper club at the end of October. Then we had like a big fundraising dinner, the, uh, the next, like the first week of, uh, November. Um, so things are good. You know, it's, it's like, um, we get to pause and, uh, breathe a little bit and reflect and <laughs> sort of like do all the things that we wish we had time to do a little bit more during the middle of the season. But, um, yeah, this was definitely our, um, best season yet, but, yeah, it's it's nice. You know, I mean, wintertime, we, we always sort of we get ourselves in a little bit of trouble because we say that there's like a slow season coming when um, our like really busy season ends. And it's not actually a slow season. It's just like a little bit slower, but we just keep ourselves busy with other stuff, you know, <laughs> so there's always something. It's uh, not as busy, busy season. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, you know, because during uh, when I started busy busy season it's like i'm talking mostly about events you know because we're like we're not a restaurant we do these um events basically every weekend on friday and saturday and then a bunch of other stuff in between so now we're still busy with a lot of stuff but we just like can take a saturday and relax a little bit which is like something that i don't get to do for 
most of the weeks for like six months before this. For the uninitiated, give a kind of like overview of the whole Lost Creek operation. Um, yeah, so good question. So we, uh, so Lost Creek Farm is a working farm. Um, it's somewhat of a historic working farm in that it was, it was not called Lost Creek Farm at the time, but the like the farmhouse here uh, was built by Amy's great great grandparents in the 1880s. Um, the land was farmed a long time before that. So there's a lot of history here, uh, history of growing and um, making and preserving food. Um, and Amy and I moved here eight years ago uh, after it had been abandoned for a couple decades. Uh, so now, you know, we run Lost Creek Farm as partially a farm, but more so like we're known as a culinary business. So we're sort of a destination for um, on-farm culinary experiences, if you will. So it's like, uh, it is, again, it's not a restaurant, but, um, you know, basically from May through the beginning of November, every weekend, almost every weekend here, we are putting these um, on-farm dinner experiences on, which um, we call the Farm and Forage Supper Club. Uh, it was cool to see you at the table last year. So um, it was, you know, you know a little bit about it, right? But... Yeah, yeah, it was a really wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah, and... Um, and I don't know. I mean, we like we moved here, you know, when we moved here, the place, because it had been abandoned for such a long time, there was just like so much work to do. And um, we, you know, we didn't really know exactly what form this was going to take, um, you know, and it took a lot of years of sort of uh, honing our dreams and our vision and a lot of years of just like chipping away at bringing the farm back to life and bringing the, the farmhouse back to life and you know, basically it wasn't until 2019 that we, we felt comfortable enough, like inviting people to the farm because, you know, like shit was just under construction all the time before that. And it still kind of is and always will be in, in some way. But um, there's like at least fewer ways for people to get hurt now, you know, like, like less sharp metal and <laughs> debris in the yard or whatever. <laughs> you know, during that whole time, we were... Uh, just sort of like thinking about what we were ultimately going to do here. And then uh, I guess when we sort of launched the series in 2019, it was very much a pilot, you know, it was like this big experiment. Like are, are people going to come here because it's, you know, it's not close to much that people would travel to. Otherwise it's like in the middle of Harrison County and very rural place. And we didn't know, you know, if people would find their way off the beaten path to come for dinner, but, um, they did, and they seemed to like it. So we're here. We are. When you were kind of setting that up, were there any other like similar farms or operations that you were taking like business model influence from? From a, like a oh, they're doing this cool thing. Maybe we can take their like most successful stuff and emulate it here. Just from like a business standpoint. Um, not so much here in West Virginia. I mean, there are other farms that do events, you know, that do events and weddings and will host guests, chefs as like part of their whole shtick. And, and we were part of that. I mean, that's like, like before we were able to open the farm up in 2019, you know, we, we basically had to find, we had to seek out venues that were 
willing to host us for a night or for a couple of nights or whatever. And some of those were uh, venues here in West Virginia and some of them were farms, but, but there wasn't, you know, I think the thing that is unique about us here is the fact that we run the farm, but are also the people sort of putting on the show from a culinary perspective, you know, and that was like, that was like the thing that we hadn't really seen done here as much. Um, you know, and, and, you know, like you'll see a restaurant sometimes that has a kitchen garden and grow some things. And, um, you know, there, there's like bits and pieces of similarity out there that we could draw a little bit of inspiration from, um, but just not on the same sort of scale. But, but I mean, I, I think that, you know, part of the, part of the dream, you know, when we, when we arrived here, even before we moved in, but we just sort of knew that we had the opportunity to move here was just that like, uh, the place would sort of drive the vision, you know, it was like, we had this place and we didn't know, you know, like Harrison County, it's, um, you know, we were moving from Lewisburg and we were sort of like, wow, this is like, like there's not, you know, we were used to living in Lewisburg with all this other, you know, a lot of cultural activities around and this like sort of, um, you know, robust creative community there. And we sort of like felt like we were taking a pretty big jump and taking a pretty big risk, honestly, to move to a place that didn't have, um, all that much stuff. But I think what we discovered is there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty in communities in West Virginia that don't get, um, you know, like recognized necessarily in the same way as a place like, you know, Lewisburg or Morgantown or some of the other places that we had lived where there's like a lot of people that we think of as creative types. But um, I think when you get into communities, like you really realize that um, like survival in a rural place takes so much creativity and um, like people are creatives in ways that we don't, really think of if if we don't think of them as you know as artists or self-proclaimed creatives but there's just like so much creative creativity all around you in ways that um people have just had to tap into just to simply survive and that kind of stuff can be uh even more inspiring you know than living in a town where there's like a bunch of nice restaurants and you know galleries or the other things that we think of when we're like oh this is what makes a creative community so it was you know it was really cool to um over the years to to challenge our own expectations of what it would be like to um, move back here and to challenge the viability of that of that sort of model that we were trying to build here because I think like I think it's a good question of like where where we got inspiration because I think there were a lot of people along the way that when they would see similar models you know they would see like oh they're in they're in places with like so much more disposable income or or there would be some some reason, right, that they would say, oh, it won't really work that well where where you are or or you don't have like a lot of money or a lot of big investors or anything like that. And um, it's been fun over the years to just like, you know, we're not kind of like rub it in people necessarily, but, but <laughs> it kind of is, you know, it's fun to do that when when we see that this thing actually works. Well, it almost adds an extra chip onto your shoulder of like, oh, no, I want to do this here and I want to like use that prove them wrong kind of mentality to almost drive you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think there's like there's a lot of things that we think about like that. But, you know, Amy and I both grew up in West Virginia and, um, 
you know, I'm in no way like a, a purist of you know, like, oh, you have to be from West Virginia to make a difference here. But I think there are a lot of people who um, we encountered in our first few years in business that are sort of part of this kind of like um, grifty ecosystem of like nonprofits that are trying to sort of, you know, step in and try to um, tell you what's viable and what's not in this sort of small business world. And um, like a lot of these people have no idea about small business or about rural communities or, you know, uh, just like it, and it, and it was, I mean, it was for us who were, you know, like we, we, we really sort of tapped into the, the pride of like being from here and being more intimately familiar with these communities where we came from and where we're trying to set up shop. And, um, you know, it's, it did feel really good because there were, there were some people that wrote us off and were like, Oh, that's, that's kind of cute. You know, that you guys are trying to set up this like farm business because I mean, I think part of that is because a lot of these people are just used to like setting up things and, you know, watching them, fail and sometimes on like really big scales right so it's like it's easy for people like that to sit back and say oh this isn't gonna work the way that the supper club is where you kind of combine the food and the the storytelling aspect of each course you come out and you talk about hey this is so and so it's grown from here uh it really shows how much of a deep connection there is between like food and sense of place. Was mm -hmm. that a thing that you'd always like felt inside of you or did that come like after growing up? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great, great question. So I think um, that's one of the points that I should have probably touched on earlier. You know, when you sort of said for the, for the uninitiated, like set the scene for supper club. So what, what I should say about supper club is it's not, it is not like going to a restaurant, you know, where you order a meal and that, you know, it's like from a menu and you get to choose what you have. So basically we have uh, every week we have a fixed menu and it changes. But the thing that uh, Amy and I are sort of the most passionate about is um, food that has some kind of story behind it, you know, and that's the, that's the key ingredient when we talk about, cooking food that is of a place, you know, whether that's Appalachia or anywhere else, I think, um, you know, the thing that makes it feel legitimately Appalachian to us or from West Virginia for us is uh, the fact that we can use the power of storytelling to connect that food, whatever it is, to the people who live here, you know, and connect and use the stories of those people to connect them and their foodways to the place. Um, you know, so that's that's sort of is the unique and defining thing about uh, the experience that we offer when people come to Supper Club is that uh, with every course, you know, there is a story to be told about that. And we try to make sure that um, that that story gets told. And I think to your question, uh, with that background information out of the way, like um, I think there are there's like a little bit of truth in saying that it's something that I discovered you know, later in life, but I, now that I look back on it, I do sort of think that, um, that I maybe had a little bit of this that I didn't fully recognize at the time that, uh, that I sort of knew that the stories were important, um, to, to like food, but also other 
kinds of culture, you know, and I think part of that for me was just like growing up in a place like West Virginia that, um, you know, did have a lot of misrepresentation and a lot of sort of cultural exploitation um, and sort of being able to think about, you know, what, what would legitimize somebody from here um, as being like, you know, not the owner or whatever, like, but, but like an appropriate messenger of this uh, cultural tradition or like an appropriate bearer of the tradition, I guess is um, maybe the better thing to say about it, because I think it's, it's like very easy for somebody who is, um, you know, not based in, in any particular place to say like, to wake up and say like, oh, one day I'm just going to start cooking like whatever is trendy you know and and like i think for some chefs in other cities it was appalachian food at one point so you know if you've got a chef in dc or new york or whoever that wherever that just decides oh we're gonna we're gonna like open up an appalachian restaurant or we're gonna we're gonna put appalachian things on our menu like they could do that like they could have the ingredients and they could you know maybe have the skill sets but unless they've you know, spent time with people from the place and spent time sort of learning the stories of the place, they, they can't provide that same sort of context behind a food that connects it to the place the way that you can when you, uh, you know, are either of the place or have established deep relationships with people of a place. And, um, and I think like, what it took for me to figure that out was uh, going to journalism school, right? So like I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a chef and I was actually enrolled in this culinary school in South Carolina, but I dropped out for like a number of reasons before I even started. Like it was, it, you know, I was like, I had been accepted, I had been enrolled, but before that school year started, I just, you know, I had a couple experiences working in, um, restaurants here that made me sort of second guess it. And I was also part of the driving force for me was that I was the first, I was part of the first class of promise scholarship recipients in West Virginia. So it was like free tuition in state. That was um, something that was quite a contrast from like an expensive culinary school in South Carolina. So, so I just went to journalism school and I said, well, maybe I'll come back to food later, but it was in journalism school where I was doing a lot of, you know, projects on on food like I was passionate about food still so I chose food as a subject from a lot of my work and and I just like spent a lot of time with a lot of people and and um you know it it, it felt like everything that I wanted to do working in food because it was it was like more nourishing and more meaningful to me than cooking sometimes was to just sit down with somebody and talk to them on their porch about why you know ramps are culturally significant or you know, why this like certain method of canning is important and why they want to pass it on. And I think those were all the experiences that really made me think about um, how my passion for food might actually be a passion for place. And food was just like one avenue to explore that. Um, so that's what I mean when I say, you know, it, it's like, like maybe I did discover that later on, but when I think about that and I, there was that little, that was that switch that flipped and the light that came on, I, I felt like it was something that was like deeper seated that, um, you know, there's like passion for place was 
maybe driving a lot of things because I did other things, you know, I, like when I played music, it was like, I really wanted to play music of this place, you know, and I, I do other visual arts, but it's always sort of inspired by the place, you know, so all these things kind of came together and, and, um, and I thought about what, what I wanted to express through food. It was like, it came back a lot to that place. And those stories really sort of reaffirmed that in a lot of ways. Well, it seems like the journalism skill set really informed like the cooking skill set and vice versa, where now you've kind of interlocked them together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I say this a lot, you know, that, that, um, cause people will ask me what, where did you go to culinary school or what? Did you do? And I, I will often say that the best thing that I ever did for my culinary career was to drop out of culinary school before I went and to go to journalism school. Because what I, what happened when I went to journalism school, and I think part of it might be the fact that I went to journalism school here. You know, I went to journalism school in, at WBU. My experiences might not have been the same if I went to, you know, somewhere in California, right? And I do like, because part of my experience in journalism school was developing a deeper understanding of this super complicated and complex place that we get to call home, right? So like, that was, I think part of that work was just introducing me to more places and more people here in West Virginia. But, um, you know, you can learn the, the technical skill sets of cooking in a lot of ways other than culinary school. You know, there's like culinary school has value for sure. And, um, and I don't want to discount that, but for me, I like, because the thing that drives my work more than that technical skill set is my passion for this place and my like knack for uncovering stories. Right. And, um, and helping people tell those stories and like using those stories to craft an experience that is completely different than something that you can get anywhere else. Um, like, that's why I always say like, yeah, it was, it was so much more valuable to me than, than going with culinary school. Cause you don't, you know, I've done a little bit of mentoring with culinary students. There are some culinary instructors in culinary schools that think the storytelling part of it, when they see what we're doing is like valuable enough that we should start teaching younger kids about that. Right. But it like the prevailing, uh, curriculum in culinary schools has nothing to do with the storytelling part of it. So it's like, um, it was like, if I went to culinary school, I definitely would not be, you know, in the same boat. I don't think doing the same thing. So through all of this learning or conversations you're having with people, what's the most like interesting or surprising thing that you've found or learned within these conversations? I don't, I don't know that it was the, that it was the most surprising, like now that we have all of this sort of information to look back on, but I do think at the time there were a lot of um, things that were surprising to us in, in people's reactions to some of the stories that we, that we would tell. And we, you know, we, we tell these stories because we think they're really interesting. We don't tell them because we are trying to like, you know, pull this emotional response out of people when they eat these things. But I think one of the things that is really special to us is that happens. Um, and it, it happens when we serve certain dishes and, um, you know, so to like give you an example, we, uh, you know, we have certain dishes that are like vinegar pie is a good example of it or chow chow 
Um, there are dishes that are common in, you know, West Virginia, Appalachian foodways, but um, people, even though they're, ex they're so delicious. I mean, I, they're, they're so good. These dishes are, but people have a um, negative connotation and negative association with some of these dishes because, um, you know, in this country, we do this thing where we say like, you know, poverty is the result of individual failure rather than some kind of, you know, systemic thing that is very much at play uh, in, throughout the history of the extractive history of a place like West Virginia, where, you know, people are thrust into situations of poverty by no part of their, their own doing, but um, are kind of there and stuck in, again, you know, tapping into creativity to survive. So a lot of these, the most beautiful dishes that we have to work with are products of um, the thrift and ingenuity and, uh, you know, uh, unending creativity of rural home cooks. And to me, that's like a thing that is, it's like a real source of pride, you know, and a thing that really in, in, informs my storytelling um, is to talk about the people that made these things with such pride. But, but I think the thing that was, that took us maybe a little bit by surprise and, um, but is something we pay attention to a lot is how people would come up to us after we would serve some of these things. And they would tell us that like what the situation was when they walk, when they went into the, um, the dinner or, you know, wherever it was, and when they sat at the table, um, you know, they didn't expect to see like dishes from their childhood that they didn't think were, you know, of quality, but they, it was like, it was presented to them in a way that, that nobody else had, had presented it before. And, and this was like an emotional experience for them. And I think that, um, that is not something that we necessarily expected when we sought out to, uh, put this food on the plate and put some of these stories with the food, but it, it's powerful because, um, you know, in a dish like vinegar pie or chow chow, and, and I guess I should say both of those dishes, it's like, so vinegar pie, this particular recipe anyway, of vinegar pie is a little bit of, um, mock lemon pie that, uh, sort of gained uh, a lot of popularity during, uh, you know, during all the times of, uh, the, all the hard times where you really had to lean in on thrift and necessity to, um, to survive in a place like this. And, and then chow chow is sort of this thing that you make with like all the, the scraps it's a pickled or fermented relish that you make with a lot of the scraps from the garden at the end of the harvest season. Um, and both of those things are, were sort of seen at a time as things that you only make because you have to, you know, or because you're like poor enough to have to eat those things. Um, and not everybody thought that way about those things, but enough people did. And there were enough people sort of weaving together these bullshit narratives about poverty to make people internalize that in a way that was like, Oh, I, maybe I shouldn't let people see that I'm eating vinegar pie or I'm, you know, eating chow chow or whatever the, the thing was that you associate with, um, hard times, because it's like, if, if the narrative is that if you're poor, it's your own fault, then like any sort of indication that you're poor is, um, something that people try to stay away from. Right. So, um, so there is this whole thing where people will 
grow up, you know, and decide like, oh, I'm going to get some backlash or people are going to form opinions about me if they see me eating these things. Because food is a really clear indicator oftentimes of class and status and um, and whatnot. So we, we try to flip the script on all that. You know, we put these things out there and we say, we tell a, a story that is different than, you know, about it being something that you're eating because you have to. And we try to give, you know, people reasons to connect to that food and in different and meaningful and prideful ways and um it this is maybe i mean to your question like maybe one of the things that was really surprising to us because we it's not exactly what we set out to do we just sort of saw it happening right like we just like i served vinegar pie because i knew the story of vinegar pie and i was really proud of it and the recipe that we have was collected in our farmhouse and that was really cool to me but it's even cooler that, that like you know, people sometimes with like a few tears in their eyes, you know, will come up and talk about um, like what people had to say about vinegar pie when they were growing up. You know, they thought they would never eat it again because they they didn't want that. And and, you know, I mean, I, this stuff is still at play. I think sometimes, you know, I look around at some of the tourism marketing in in West Virginia and um there it's it is sort of like they're using like a series of imagery or a series of um words or things to that try to indicate um some sort of like quality that you can experience in that like outside of west virginia but it's almost like the message is more like oh hey you'll be surprised to know that we have in west virginia these like imported you know seafood or imported wines or whatever and I, I i will like never be the person who says we should not have those things here so and i want to be clear about that because sometimes people think oh like mike doesn't think people in west virginia should have access to lobster or scallops or whatever and it's like that's not what How i'm dare saying, you? I'm saying. <laughs> but what i'm saying is like if we're trying to convince people from other states or wherever to come to west virginia like we should not sell them on things that they can experience back home you know and i think it's like like we were really shy about that for a long time like as um like when, when i when i look back through marketing over the years i see this a lot where it's like like it's almost like we were scared to say this is something that is ours because there was this like fear that people would think it wasn't good enough right and it was like a thing that we were making because we had to and we had to show people that we're we're not as poor as you think we are well it's marketing that signals that oh you can come here and experience what you're comfortable with rather than yeah. stepping out of your comfort zone and trying something else right right yeah and that's not i don't know i mean maybe maybe at one point people felt that like that was more uh effective but um we certainly haven't found that and um you know, I think there's like West Virginia is full of these place based cultural assets. And I think the more that we can be into that, um, you know, the better off we are. Um, but I do feel like, I don't know, maybe things are changing, you know, a little bit like I, I see anyway, like a little bit of shift in some of the um, at least the language that is used for for some of the marketing stuff. But um, 
but I mean, it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, you can go back decades. I mean, one of my favorite things to do in the, the off season when I have some time is go back through some of the um, newspaper archives. And, you know, you can see how some of these foods, like the advertising around some of these things was like, um, it was so bad, you know, I mean, like, even like when, uh, when white bread, like packaged white bread came on the market, you know, it was like all the, like a lot of the advertising was sort of marketed in, in some of these coal communities, you know, especially it was like a lot of um, places where people would have a reason to feel insecure about their socioeconomic situation. And, um, you know, it was, it was marketing that would be like, oh, now that, you know, you can buy Wonder Bread or whatever the packaged bread was, it's like, don't let the other children at your kid's school see that you had to bake your own bread for them, you know, let them see that, that you could go to the store and buy this like sliced squishy white bread, you know, because it was, it was like an indicator. If you could buy, if you could send your kid to school with store-bought bread, that was like a status symbol. So then it turns all these people away from like these rich, you know, bread baking traditions. And now it's kind of, flipped right where it's like if you're buying squishy white bread um you're the one that's like you know making bad decisions about your health your family's health but if you have you know if you're making sourdough at home you're like oh you have like leisure time what were your earliest memories where food played a major factor in that you know, now that we're we're here, it's almost Thanksgiving, like Christmas is around the corner. One of the ones that I think about, uh, like one of my earliest, like fun memories around food was just being in my, um, my grandma's kitchen, we would make Christmas cookies every year. And, and it was just like, um, you know, I think that one maybe is, is one that I really hold on to a lot, because it, it was, you know, something like an annual tradition that I could participate in as a you know, as a little kid and it, um, and it was like, there was something about it, right. Cause you could buy cookies. You could just, if you wanted to, you could eat cookies every year and that, that could be a tradition, but it like, was something about making it, you know, and, and being involved in that process. And, um, I, you know, I knew my grandma as somebody who wanted to, um, entertain, you know, and wanted to host people. And she was always putting on these like, uh elaborate kind of dinner parties at her house for a lot of times it was like for women in her church um and i don't know i mean maybe that's part of where i got this same sort of like affinity for you know bringing people to my home and and you know putting on a, a dinner party but but there were a lot of things that i um i credit my grandma for i mean that that yeah like making these little christmas cookies was certainly something that we look forward to every year. But one of the stories that I tell at Supper Club that is um, also a, a very fond, like early childhood memory for me is of these uh, communion wafers that my grandma used to make at her church. Uh, so she went to a Baptist church. It's called Emmanuel Baptist Church in Kanawha County. And like my brother and I, we did not go to church with her on Sunday, but um because my parents were just like working all the time. My grandparents would basically babysit my, my brother and I uh, during the week. And on Thursday and Friday mornings, my grandma would take us to this church and she would be making these crackers and she would be 
joined by several other elders in the church and they would be making these communion wafers for for sunday service and um it's also one of those things that they could have just bought right but there was like there was something about the the ritual of making those communion wafers that i picked up on at a very early age that felt really special to me um and you know and i'll never forget those women working together and they had these you know these rolling pins and they were rolling out these big sheets of dough and they had these little um you know like rotary cutters or as you call it like a pizza cutter and they were just like cutting these little imperfect squares and and um you know and because my brother and i didn't go to the sunday service we didn't go to church with my grandma we never saw how these were used like in service but we just thought they were really tasty and they like and they were you know and my uh, by the way my dad went to a catholic church and those were always bad communion wafers like they never put uh salt and you know these were like these were communion wafers at my grandma's church that had like oil and salt in them they had a little bit of flavor and so um so my brother and i we just ate a lot of these communion wafers like on thursday and friday mornings and um and in some ways it's like it, it's kind of nice that i never got to like see how they were supposed to be used in service because it might have taken away from the things that i picked up on you know to, to me the ritual of communion was all about these women making these crackers and um and at three or not three but like maybe four or five years old i was pretty young like um you know i didn't i didn't have like an understanding of why they were doing it necessarily but the fact that they were doing it was an image that uh like stuck in my mind for a long time so the reason that we start all of our events at supper club with these little crackers is um you know it's because there's so many ways that this like idea of community ties into what we do here you know whether it is um the community of people who stewarded seeds over the generations and made sure that these seeds get saved so that we could plant them in our garden and share them with our guests or the community of people who you know stewarded recipes because it really does it takes so many people to keep these things alive um or like the growing community of people who have chipped in in some way and helped amy and i rebuild the farm i mean it's just like we couldn't do this without um the community and and the community of farmers that we rely on to source ingredients that we don't grow or produce here um the community is very strong so that that imagery of those women making those little crackers it's like the first time that i can ever remember watching people work together as a community in order to feed a community in some way right so there's like as simple as the recipe is those little crackers um are so so significant so we we open every single event if you come to supper club every every single event uh is opened with with these little communion wafers from my grandma's church well it's kind of coming together for the greater good of both spiritual and like literally feeding people so it yeah it ties in nicely yeah. just from a thematic standpoint mm -hmm. yeah and that's like the the majority of the feedback that we get you know, when people are um on their way out the door it's just like the thing that that we can take some pride in and realizing that it it's it is what is different than, you know, going to a restaurant anywhere is that it's like people are sort of will always say, that, oh, yeah, like hearing about these things is what made this experience like the food was really good. Right. But like hearing about these things and hearing about like the people behind these things um, was the was what made the experience, you know, and and uh, 
I always use the like I I, I, like, I like to talk about seeds and beans a lot. So I'll talk about beans, you know, and I always say like you can eat a plate of green beans. And, you know, if you cook it well, that that plate of green beans is going to be really delicious. You know, it's like I love green beans. So like I haven't met that many plates of green beans that I don't think are delicious. But when you can hear that the particular beans that you're eating are of this like treasured seed that somebody gave us, right, personally sought us out and said, you know, sometimes it's like like there's a guy in Nicholas County named Lou. Uh, I'm going to his birthday party this year, like this week, actually, he's turning 96. And, uh, you know, he gave us a few of these seeds. And part of what Lou said to us is, is like, you know, he's 96. So he said, I'm, you know, I might not be here for that long. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I want these beans to stay alive a long time after I'm gone. Right. And, and that is like a thing that I mean, I'm, I get chills when I just like, talk about it every time because it's a special thing to have somebody trust in you and confide in you to take this this seed which is such a living breathing part of their family and you know their community and to want to steward that in a way that you know that they're they're finding other trusted sources that they can uh ensure will take care of that seed and and pass it on you know um so that's a really special and touching experience when you can connect with a plate of beans you know but but you can you know like through the story you totally can do that and um you know and sometimes i'll play a little audio clip like i've got i've i recorded a lot of these stories from people so i sometimes at supper club i can um you know play over the speakers like some stories about the seeds or sometimes I'll, i'll play a story of my mom talking about the Aunt Flota's dumplings or whatever it is that I'm serving at the table there. And it's like, it just adds another layer of, um, you know, something it's like yet another ingredient that is part of the dinner. That's not on the menu, but makes it through the storytelling, uh, really special. It's almost like it's archival work on top of storytelling or just cooking like you're really trying to bring it forward rather than just tell the greatest hits of the past right right and 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 it is i mean it's um it is archival work in a lot of ways and um you know and some of the folks in our community like you know there's some people where it's like we'll we'll fall into beans or something like that that people seek us out for and people will say like oh i i heard about you guys or or in some cases like lou we knew him for a while before he shared his beans with us but um but there are some people where we hear you know about them and i would say like one of the examples here is um the like the spanish sausage tradition in harrison county is really rich and um and i knew about this because there was when i was in college i think i mean maybe back in like 2005 or so there was this special in west virginia public broadcasting about spanish immigrants who had come to west virginia in the early 1900s um and and there were a lot of them they're like you know here in harrison county there's there are a lot of um italian restaurants and a lot of you know streets or buildings or whatever with uh italian names on them so you see like there's still visual symbols of 
of these things that of, of particular communities. But the Spanish community was fascinating to me because um, you don't hear a lot about Spanish immigrants. But at, at one time, uh, there were almost twenty thousand Spanish immigrants living in Harrison County, and they like they came to work in the zinc plants. Um, which have since closed and a lot of them followed the like the zinc plants to other places after they closed here but there's still a few families around and they they have these really special culinary traditions that have stuck around and part of that is um in the spanish charcuterie you know sausage especially um so you know we just started like i just started trying to find people because i wanted to learn how to you know how to make some of this stuff and i just wanted people to um teach me things and um you know share stories and it, it was interesting because a lot of um a lot of these folks had never had anybody say like i'm interested in your story i'm interested in your you know your family's heritage or i'm interested in um in like what what you guys make and the traditions you pass on um and not to, i'm not saying all that to take any credit for it but i think the reason that it's interesting to me is is that like a lot of times uh you find that like we all have interesting stories within us um but sometimes it just takes somebody else asking about them for us to really like realize that it's special enough to talk about you know and and like i think this happened with a couple of these folks where they were like oh it's not i mean yeah like we just make sausage it's not anything like that fascinating you know just like you just grind the meat and put in the spices and then you've got sausage like that's i don't know like what else do you want to know but but when you can put a microphone in, in front of somebody's face you know like respectfully and uh just like get them talking then they sometimes they just don't stop you know <laughs> they like have tears in their eyes and they're just like okay i guess you're right i guess this is about more than the sausage right it's like about all these other things that i like you know, really care about that the sausage is one way that we, you know, maintain a tie to our ancestry and our community and, you know, our family and all these things. Um, but that kind of work is also very interesting to me because, you know, I think in West Virginia, we tend to draw a lot of lines around like um, insiders and outsiders. And sometimes we just, we just sort of simplistically define those lines as like if you were born in west virginia then you're an insider but if you're not born in west virginia they're an outsider but um you know but for me like being somebody who is like not you know of a particular um you know cultural or ethnic community it's like you know it could be like some of our neighbors some of our spanish neighbors are just like a few houses down the road here um which in Lost Creek is still like a couple miles, but like, um, but all that to say, like, it's an interesting exercise and in sort of like all of you putting all of your sort of journalistic ethics to work because you're, you know, you are entering into another community in another space and you're not, you're not taking like ownership of it in the same way that you can when there's like a, oh, this story is about West Virginia or Appalachia and I get to own it because I was, born here you know there's like there's always a sensitivity and a respect that that you have to bring to you know to that kind of work and, um, and i think it's very important in a, an area especially like food where there is just like so much appropriation and exploitation all the time 
Well, a thing that I learned in journalism school and I think about a lot is this idea of like, oh, you're not giving someone a voice. They already have that voice. It's just you're mm-hmm. amplifying it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for I sure. Tr- try to consider that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's... um. I think that's really good. And I, I think that's, that's part of why I just love, um, I mean, I do, I've done a little bit of writing, but I really love audio and video stuff. Um, because it's just, it's just really special to get people talking about stuff in their own words, you know, <laughs> and to, um, not that you can't manipulate that, you know, as an, as an editor, but, uh, but I, I just, you know, I, I find these moments so special. I mean, sometimes I will come back from a day in the field and, it's like, I thought this interview was going to be like 20 minutes, you know, and, and then I've got like seven hours of audio to you know, to go back through and to edit and everything. And it's like, it can be a pain in the ass when you're like working on a thing and you have to edit down and you have to listen to that seven hours like again and again. But but it's a very special thing to have all of that because, you know, it's like somebody, you, you know, you think of what it took for somebody to invite you into their space and keep you there and um you know and 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 be able to share that 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 much with you but i think um you know one of the other things that uh i wish i had learned more about in journalism school i mean i don't want to say that we didn't learn anything about this in journalism school but i don't think there was enough sort of attention paid to the fact that um to get to that point where somebody is comfortable bringing you into their house inviting you into their house and you know sitting you down and telling you about these like rich special traditions for seven hours it's like you have to build a relationship first you know you can't just like call somebody up and say oh i'm gonna come over for seven hours and we're gonna record and i'm gonna use that somehow and uh you know either like repackage like your recipes and you know sell them in in some way and or like put the food on the dinner table and i'm gonna make money from it or i'm gonna you know write a story about this that i will be paid for it's like you you have to uh, get to know people, you know, you have to build a relationship in a way that is reciprocal, you know, so it's like, it's not just about this one transaction about you getting all the information that you need for the story, but, um, you know, and, and that's what I am also like very proud of is the, you know, all of the relationships that we built, you know, like to, to build this community around, uh, stories and food and, you know, to tap into communities that have been there for a long, long time. And, um, I think what I talk about to, to build our community, I'm talking about like all the, all the people in a very specific, like um, all the people that we've sort of met through Lost Creek Farm. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that relationship building work, it, it's the most time consuming and it, you know, it takes a long time some, sometimes to gain the trust and to gain the, you know, the, like, just the sort of like mutual uh, understanding of each other, but it is so worth it, you know, and I think it's, I think that's a thing that I worry about with journalism teaching these days is that everything is sort of framed in such a like quick soundbite sort of like, you know, very, very like small bite consumption of media now that, um, that the like trust and relationship building stuff is something that I fear is not getting enough sort of like attention that that it should 
in all the years that you've been at that farm on Lost Creek and done the supper club and everything, what are the moments that have stood out of like real sense of pride moments for you of like, oh, this is special. Like this is this is a highlight. Yeah, so that's tough. I mean, so we have a couple that are sort of, you know, naturally at the top of the list because people, everybody knows about them. You know, it's like we, um, I guess the biggest one that most people know about is that when Anthony Bourdain did his West Virginia episode, he visited the farm. Um, but, you know, that was a, that was challenging also because we, at that point, we had never, the, you know, I talked earlier about the farm being under construction for a long time and, and will always will be. But at that time, it was it was a mess. I mean, to put, to put it bluntly, like it, we weren't ready for that. And um, we had never had people at the farm. You know, we'd never opened it up to the public. We'd never done a dinner here or anything. All of our work to that point had been exclusively on the road and other venues. So we weren't really ready for um, I think there were there were 45 people uh, altogether at that at that event um and maybe more because they're they have they travel with a big crew i mean probably 12 or 14 people or so and um you know we like we like ran out of water we're on a well where that is not the best we've since installed some water storage tanks to help us with this but we like ran out of water at two in the afternoon when these guys were here there's just like many more people than had ever been to the farm so um there were like all these stressful things that happened um, about that visit, but uh, but that's one of them. Do you think that idea of um, not doing the supper club beforehand and that being like the first dinner on the farm, were you going to do those farm dinners anyway? Or did you realize like, oh, that's what people think this is, so we better offer that to them as just a means to an end? Yeah, no, we, we had kind of plan to do something like that uh I, I think at that point we were pretty well set on like that's what we were building towards um but we didn't necessarily um like envision things falling into place like so quickly and and part of that is that um at that time we had sort of just started to um get more serious about uh building another facility on the farm so uh, this is something that we can get into in more detail, but but basically it's like uh, one of the things that makes this work a real pain in the ass is that we we have to work out of a commercial kitchen in downtown Clarksburg to do all of the cooking and the prep, and then we like schlep everything back to the farm. Um, and we had been sort of at that point had been like uh, starting to talk about building another facility on the farm, which uh, is like a a long convoluted story about that and where we are now but um but it was funny i mean that I, I think that really probably propelled us to to open the farm up when we did in 2019 for for other events because amy and i we were like we were we did not feel like we were ready for that when we did that in 2019 and we we had a lot of insecurity uh within ourselves about you know what what people would think when they saw us on Anthony Bourdain and then they come out and they like, so there's this expectation in their minds about this place. And then they um, uh, come out here and it's like, it is still under construction or, you know, or, or whatever. And, and I mean, Bourdain did say that we are in the process of rebuilding this farm. So it wasn't, 
maybe it wasn't like uh, that much of a surprise to people, but we were scared about that. And we, we were like, oh, it's going to be a bad thing if people expect that they're coming to like a nice place. <laughs> and then, and then it's just like, we don't have the, you know, trim done or whatever is the current project at the farm. But, um, but I think it actually turned out to be quite the opposite of that. And people totally love the fact that it's like a work in progress and that we're always, you know, working hard by ourselves to, to improve it. Um, and then in that it's not a place, you know, that, it's like it's not a place that has uh, a lot of money behind it and a lot of investors. You know, it's like it's like if you go to a restaurant in a city that's like well funded, you expect it to be, you know, together and um, in a lot of ways and really like polished. And I don't necessarily mean that in like a visual aesthetic sense, but just like, you know, service the whole thing to be sort of like smooth. And um, and we just were sort of like, I don't know, man, like if people come out here and it's not the experience they're looking for, like it might, it might taint this whole thing forever. But, um, it was, it was exactly the opposite and it. It really, uh, was very, very special. Um, so, you know, the Bourdain thing for one, uh, last year in 2022, we got the opportunity to host, uh, Yo-Yo Ma for a night here at the farm, which was, uh, pretty cool you know i like i gotta say that was much cooler than i thought it would be um not that i was like that i didn't think it was going to be cool but i just like you know i'm i'm not much of a classic classical music aficionado i i knew who yo-yo ma was but um but he's great i mean he's a great person and um he was a great uh guest at the farm here and um that was really cool as well because there were a lot of other people i wasn't much of like a classical music kid i was like a pbs kid type kid where i'd watch a lot of pbs kids sesame street yo ma shows up like way more than you would expect between sesame street arthur Mm -hmm. all these other shows so when i saw like him going on his little tour it's like oh shit yo yo ma hanging out with kathy matea it there was like yeah yeah he went whitewater rafting on that trip and part of me was like man i fucking live here and i haven't been whitewater rafting yet yo-yo ma has like it made me think like i gotta get on it like i i'm slacking here uh yeah i mean but that that night was like so special because you know there were other people from other artists you know from west virginia like robbie moore was here and uh crystal good who was a dear friend she was here and she was reading poems and um you know and one of my like musical heroes from way back when you know was dom flemons and he showed up you know with like on on the guest list and that was so so cool and um yeah so that was that was really special but there are other things too that it you know have nothing to do with people being um celebrities or anything but it's just like there are moments of connection that happen at the farm that uh are just so cool and memorable and so when people come to sit it's it's not like you know going to a restaurant you have like a two-top or a four-top table it's at one big long communal table and um some of my favorite things to look back on from uh these experiences of the farmer are some of the connections that people make at the table you know so there's like a few that 
you know, wouldn't happen otherwise if, if we didn't see people really intentionally in that space to kind of force this conversation. Uh, but like a few years ago, 2021, actually, there were there was a couple from New York City and they were sitting at the same table as a couple from Mingo County, you know, and this was so cool because it was like all of these dishes that we were putting out on the table, um, you know, it was like they're new and different to the folks from New York City, but the people from New- from Mingo County could be like, oh, yeah, this like, you know, tomato, this is like a riff on the tomato and mayonnaise sandwich, or this is a riff on like vinegar pie or whatever it was, like the chow chow, like whatever it was, like they had their own sort of stories of you know, connection and memories of these dishes that they were adding into the conversation. And it just like weaved this extra layer of uh, complexity to like the experience for everybody, you know, because as they like they got to share something that they were really proud of about, you know, being from West Virginia and the, and the folks in New York City um, got something that we couldn't have, like something more special than we could have even orchestrated ourselves. But um, there was like a, a moment last year that I think about a lot, which is uh, we served this Eastern European dumpling, this like stuffed dumpling that was kind of inspired by um, uh, recipes that we had found from, uh, or not, we didn't find the recipes, but we, we found a book, we came across a book of um, recipes that had been collected uh, at Scott's Run, which is Scott's Run was like a very diverse mining community. Um, and it's Scott's run is still still there, but the uh, at one time there were a lot more people in in Scott's run, and I think there were something like twelve or thirteen languages spoken in Scott's run at one point, you know, and it was like um, a lot of Eastern European immigrants lived in Scott's run, uh, and with them, you know, of course they brought a lot of recipes. So there was this recipe for this like stuffed dumpling, but. People would call it different things, but, you know, there was like maybe a Polish version of it and maybe a, you know, Lithuanian version of it or, or whatever. And, um, we served it at the table and, uh, and there were these two women who sat like at kind of different ends of the table. They had never met each other before, but they're, um, they're both from Poland, um, but they live in Morgantown, right? So like, and one of them is maybe in her... 70s and one of them was like in her early 20s um and and they uh and maybe the one the younger one maybe she is not from poland herself but her parents were or something something so it was like this point of connection where like one of them heard the other one say like oh the word in polish for this dumpling and like it was like talking about this in polish and then they got to know each other and we still get text messages from uh, them or the, their family members about how they, you know, they still hang out, you know, like these, um, Marta and Betty, these two Polish women who like met at the table over dumplings and, um, became best buddies, you know, and we talked to the older woman from Poland this year, she came back to supper club and she was like, Oh yeah, you know, uh, Marta's getting married in a, a couple months. And I went wedding, I took her wedding dress shopping. Like there, it's like that level of, connection is uh, and it was like because they met over dumplings here at our table you know like that to me is um more special in a lot of ways than like having a celebrity come to your house what does the future look like for the farm so we are we are building a new space and um and that's like 
that's an exciting uh, and very daunting uh, thing on the horizon, but it, it's something that we needed for a long time. I mean, like I was saying earlier, when Bourdain came here, we, we were talking about this uh, at that time. Um, and it's taken Amy and I a long time to get to this point where we feel like we could, we could build the space um, partially because, you know, with this, with this being family land that is like so deeply like throughout history connected to her family, there are a lot of um, opinions in the family that make it complicated, you know, like about what we should do here, but especially in a way that I, I totally get, I should say this, that I, I get that um, there's a lot of hesitation about borrowing money against the land, you know, but that's like, that's the way that you can, you know, get the money that you need to build a building here because for us it's like with the farm being our home it's not a good candidate for like a traditional sort of equity investment model you know where we were like like if we had a brick and mortar restaurant in town uh it would be a different story right it would be like oh yeah we could go seek out some investors to bankroll this thing um but you know under that model they get some ownership some equity and you know ostensibly like a say in how things are run sometimes so so that's like a thing that we were really uh, not keen on because we, you know, of course, we didn't want to give ownership of our home and our farm to other people. But we also didn't want this like very special and unique business model that we've crafted here to be run in an, another way by somebody who like has no freaking clue what they're talking about, but just has like a lot of money to offer. So and that which is a thing that happens a lot. Um but it's also, you know, there, there's just like a lot of other just general challenges about um, fundraising for something like that. So this year, uh, Amy and I just sort of like, we decided that it was time and we couldn't really like, um, like not have this facility anymore because <laughs> it's, I don't think I can say enough, like how challenging it is for us to, um, to have to work offsite in this other facility in Clarksburg. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that that facility is there, but it is like such a stressful, uh, time consuming thing to have to like, you know, load up the car every day for basically like for like four days before supper club happens. Um, you know, we have like load the car up every morning, drive into town, unload everything at the end of the day, like load it back up and then unload it here because there's not storage or anything at that, at that facility. So we have like, really um been held back like we've accomplished a lot but we've really been constrained by not having the proper infrastructure here on the farm so this year we just sort of said like you know we can't really like do this anymore without this building so we like we went to the bank we we started a crowdfunding campaign which has been really really encouraging um and you know we're gonna do it so hopefully hopefully i don't want to promise anything but hopefully we uh will break ground sometime here in 2024 and and get the facility and that facility will mean so much to us so when you ask about what the future looks like you know we'll be able to do what we already do like to be able to do you know our supper club our culinary events um in better you know not always bigger but kind of bigger better ways and um you know to be able to offer more simply because we're going to have more time, you know, and more time and more space and um, it will make our product a lot better. But we're, there are also other things that we can't do right now that, that we're going to be able to do. So 
Uh, like Amy and I are very passionate about teaching, for instance. And, and this is the thing that we think about a lot because like a lot of what we get to work with are not just the ingredients and the raw materials, but it's the traditions, you know, the traditions that were passed on to us. And I think that in Appalachia, we're very lucky to get to work within this, um, like sort of economy of knowledge where like, you know, economy, I think of just like, I'm talking about this just in terms of exchanges and like, uh, knowledge sort of being a little bit of a currency. So when like somebody gives you like the knowledge to, and passes on a tradition, there's like this expectation that you pay that forward in some way. Um, and you know, we, we love to do that. So we will do a little bit of, uh, teaching here and there but generally when we do workshops and whatnot we have to travel somewhere else because we don't have the right space for it here so um a lot of what this facility is designed to be is a little bit of a uh, a classroom of sorts where we can teach these things and pass them on and continue to build community around all of these incredible uh foodways that we're blessed with here in appalachia and that are always evolving and always changing and um you know it gives us a chance to make um this story about more people than just us because we don't we don't want to be the only people teaching in that space you know we'll we'll like hire other sort of champions of the traditions to uh come in and share their their wealth of knowledge as well but um um yeah we're very excited about it you know it's like um it's been kind of incredible really to to think about what we've uh gotten the opportunity to do and what we've been able to pull off here with with like not um a whole lot of money behind us but i i do want to just sort of say that like the you know this this is the thing that gets overlooked when people interview us about you know how we were able to do what we were able to do with like with not very many resources and i, I do want to say though that like uh we're sitting on land that we inherited and that is a tremendous privilege and um and i get really pissed off sometimes when people don't want to talk about that <laughs> like because i think sometimes we we will have people approach us and they want to write an article and they want to write an article about how anybody could do this you know you just you don't need like a lot of money or anything and it's true that we we did not have we've never had a lot of money since we moved here and i think that is like that shows up in the fact that we're you know we, we can just fix up the farm or fix up the house whenever we have the money and the time to do so. But like, we would not, Lost Creek Farm would not exist if we didn't have the like generational privilege and the, and it's also racial privilege, you know, to have a farm because there were not a lot of non-white people in Harrison County who could own farmland in, you know, 18, whatever, when, when Amy's family started handing this land down through the generations so that's like that's like a thing that sometimes feels a little bit uh tangential but i think is like very critical to the story of um of lost creek farm and um any other thing that people want to point to is like oh this success happened with very little at play here other than hard work and bootstraps you know it's like they pull themselves up and generational um, land yeah yeah um but i think the you know the fact that we did inherit this and we were given this immense gift of you know it's not monetary wealth but it is wealth that is you know it's 
uh, it shows up in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think that's part of what compels us to use this space to like, um, give back in a way and like, you know, build a space where we can kind of do a lot of stuff for the community here in, in ways that, um, are more than just like thinking about how scheming, how to make uh, profit from, from this space. You can keep up to date with Lost Creek Farm on the line. If you're interested in attending a farm and forage supper club event, the dates for the 2024 season will be released soon enough. Although they do sell out fast and their Patreon backers do get first access to those tickets, so you can support them there for that and other perks like art prints and recipes. Thank you for listening to Commonplace. If you liked today's episode, I ask that you subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. These are free ways that help the show in a big way. The show is hosted and produced by me, Nathan Thomas. Our theme song is Rescio by Goodwolf from the album Car in the Woods. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode of Commonplace. Commonplace.